The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. I remember the bear that raised me. Nuzzling my face into her warm belly, huge furry limbs shielding me from the biting snow. I remember the deep rumbles of her snores through the silent winter and clouds of steamy breath smelling of berries and pine nuts. My foster mother, Mamochka, says I was about two years old when she found me outside the bear cave. She says I was standing naked in the snow, but with warm pink cheeks and the biggest smile. I walked right up to her, lifted my arms into the air, and made a soft barking sound. Mamochka picked me up, and I laid my head on her shoulder, wrapped my legs around her waist, and fell straight to sleep. Mamochka says she knew right there and then we were meant to be together. But if I don't know where I came from, how can I be sure where I belong? Mamochka looked in the cave for clues about who I was or who my parents might be, but an old female bear was hibernating inside. Not wanting to disturb her, Mamochka crept away and carried me to her home at the edge of the snow forest. I love living with Mamochka. She's the best mother I could have wished for. But I often wonder about the bear. I wonder if she remembers me. Maybe even misses me. I wonder about the bear almost as much as I wonder about my real parents. The ones who must have lost me, or left me in the forest. One day I'd like to find the story of my past, and I hope it's something more magical than being unwanted and abandoned as a baby. I hope it's a tale filled with wonder that explains who I am and why I'm different, why I hear the trees whispering secrets, and why I always feel the forest pulling me in.
Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. The story that you heard at the start of this episode of the podcast was the prologue from the new children's novel from Usborne Publishing, The Girl Who Speaks Bear, written by Sophie Anderson. The Girl Who Speaks Bear is Sophie's second book. Her first, The House with Chicken Legs, having been shortlisted for a number of prestigious prizes, including the Carnegie Medal, the Waterstones Children's Book Prize, the British Book Awards Children's Book of the Year, and many others. As you can probably tell from the titles, Sophie's books draw heavily on folk tales from Russia and the surrounding areas. She grew up with these tales, both from her mother, who was also a writer, and from her Prussian grandmother, who used to tell them to her. Sophie's books are beautiful, lyrical, and full of a rich mix of folklore and stories. She joined me recently via Skype to discuss her writing, the ways in which she uses folklore to tell her stories, and why these things are important. Hello Sophie, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hello Mark, thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, it's really nice to, to have you on now, uh, as this episode is, is obviously out straight after um, the other Usborne-related episode, uh, talking about the Usborne Book of Ghosts. Um, slightly different this time, we're moving both into fiction um, and into more folk tale based stuff, although we're still in the, the children's area. Um, now you're um first book the house with chicken legs um was shortlisted for the carnegie and for many many other awards um and that was your debut novel was that a great surprise to you oh gosh yes of course it was a a, a huge surprise it was a massive surprise just to be published in the first place and then to be shortlisted for all those um awards um in particular the carnegie was just um I, I feel like saying it's a dream come true, but it's it's not something I ever actually dared to dream, to be honest. So it has been um, a, a whirlwind of a year with um, many wonderful surprises. And I'm sure it's going to carry on as well um, if if the uh, the the quality and and of the second book is anything to go by. I, th- I think I can see the direction this is going to go. Um, I I really really enjoyed um, the girl who speaks bear. I thought I thought it was a fantastic book. Before we get really into that, um, tell me a little bit about your background and where your interest in folklore comes from, because um, folklore or writing aren't really part of your earlier life and career in that way, are they? No, not at all. Um, My my mother was a writer, and um, if I'm honest, I, I think that kind of put me off because um, as I was growing up, I would see her just hiding in her study, writing away, and as a child, I just wanted to be outside, playing in the woods and um, playing on the beaches. I grew up in South Wales near the coast, so um, so that's what I did. I, I just played outside, and I didn't really do a great deal of writing or creative writing, and at school I was drawn to science like the, the natural sciences and so I studied those and I became a geologist and I worked outside um, mostly because I just love being outside and and it's, I had this whole career basically as a scientist and it wasn't until I had children um, when I was 30 
that I started to um, really get into storytelling because obviously when you have children, you start to tell them stories. And I think the stories from your childhood come back to you. And um, my grandmother told me loads of folk stories and fairy stories when I was a child and all of those came back to me and I wanted to tell those to my children. And I started to tell them stories orally and I started to write them down as well, just for pleasure, just for my own pleasure. And that's really where my writing journey um, began and also where the sort of renewed love of folklore and fairy stories, it sort of came back to me because I loved them when I was a very young child, but then sort of drifted off and had my little, you know, was working in science. But then, yes, it all sort of came back to me in my Mm. 30s as a parent. But your grandmother wasn't telling you um, British or English or or even Western folk tales particularly, was she? No, she was from Eastern Europe and her family was as well. So she used to tell me um, German fairy stories and Polish and Russian fairy stories. And um, I have some of my fondest childhood memories of um, her telling me stories. Um, She played the piano as well. I would sit next to her. Um, on her piano stool and she would tell me all these stories from her homeland and from other areas of Eastern Europe and she would play little bits of music as she was telling the stories and she kind of um, jazzed them up with memories and bits of her own imagination and it was just a, a, a wonderful experience and she was quite an emotional lady so she'd cry and she'd laugh and the whole experience was just gorgeous and they are some of my most you know treasured memories basically. Now, these stories have obviously gone on to inspire your uh, writing as as your new career. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit, without giving away too much, we don't want to uh, put any spoilers out there particularly, and we are going to focus on your new book, but can right. you tell everybody a little bit about the plot of both your first title, The House with Chicken Legs, and your new book, The Girl Who Speaks Bear? Okay, well, um, The House with Chicken Legs started as, um, it was a Baba Yaga reimagining, because Baba Yaga was um, one of my favourite folklore characters um, that my grandmother told me stories about, and um, I could talk about her for hours, but obviously um, she's a wonderful character, she's very ambiguous, and she's, in most of the folk stories, she's um, a villain, and she's cannibalistic and cruel, but there's this sort of unpredictable, benevolent streak in her as well. And um, I started to write or reimagine a version of her. I I think I really wanted to make sense of her in my mind and in particular explore that benevolent streak. So um, I kind of reimagined her. I gave her this job guiding the dead. And um, and then this story evolved. I sort of had an image in my mind of a young girl called Marinka who lived with Baba Yaga in the house of chicken legs. And uh, Baba Yaga had this job guiding the dead. And... um, the opening scene of the book is Marinka um, rebuilding the skull and bone fence that is around the house with chicken legs and sort of feeling a bit glum and sorry for herself because she lives in the house with chicken legs away from living people and she's destined to be the next Yager and she doesn't want to be. So essentially that book is Marinka's journey to carve her own destiny sort of away from the house with chicken legs and Baba Yaga. Um, and then my book, um, Girl Who Speaks There, is also based on Russian folklore, but um, a lot more folklore. Mm. I sort of drew from a lot wider sources. So um, I think the the original idea came from um, a folk story called Ivanko the Bear's Son, which is a story about a boy who was a bear from the waist down and um, a human from the waist up. 
and um, it's a very strange story and I, I think the image of the boy kind of inspired um, my original idea for the book but Ivanko is quite a strange story so um, the main character in The Girl Who Speaks Bear is a girl called Yanka and for her backstory then I drew on lots of other sources there's another story called Why Bear's Paws Are Like Hands and so I drew on that and I also draw drew on um, uh, uh, different stories of, of Baba Yaga and Koshi the Deathless and um, also some stories about um, Slavic dragons and um, female warriors as well. So I sort of took a lot of folklore and I wove it together. Um, I, I really like this idea of using lots of different stories to weave a kind of backstory for Yanka and have her use stories as a sort of guide on her own um, journey of self-discovery and, and transformation. So essentially um, the story is now Yanka's story. It's her finding out about her past. So at the start of the book, um, we find out that Yanka was found in a bear cave when she was two years old. So she doesn't know where she's from. And um, then I think in chapter two, you hear this man, Anatoly, telling her stories. And she doesn't know whether these stories are true or what bits are true. But she has this feeling that, you know, the, the answers lie in the forest and the answers lie in these stories. And um, the whole book is basically her journey into the forest to discover her past and discover who she is and discover ultimately where she belongs. Anatoly's stories are really interesting, I think, in this mm. context because because of the way that they join your main plot together. And I'm going to come back to that uh, in a little bit mm. and talk about the use of those folk tales and the character of Anatoly and the way that that's used. Um, but firstly, do you do you think that Russian folklore, such as you're using, is particularly different from the folklore in some other countries and in some other areas? Do you find it darker? Do you find it's treated in a different way? And that's what draws you to it? Yeah, I think it is quite different. Um, it's difficult to pinpoint what it is about Russian folklore that makes it stand apart from other folklore but to me it does feel very different and I've thought about this quite a lot and I think one of the things that makes it stand out is so many of the characters are ambiguous so in the more western um, fairy stories you have quite clear villains and heroes I think whereas if you look at a lot of the Russian folk tales um, quite often um, the heroes do villainous things and the villains do heroic things. And I think it's that ambiguity of the characters, the sort of unpredictableness um, that makes them really interesting to me. You know, I, I think, um, yeah, I think I think that's a key thing. But also, as you said, I think they are perhaps a little bit darker. There's quite a lot of darkness in some of the stories that, that um, does draw me to them as well. And the imagery is just fantastic. There's just such beautiful imagery um, in the stories as well. You're kind of reinterpreting, aren't you, some of some of this folklore in, in a way and, and perhaps making some of the darker characters slightly less dark. Um, yes. And, and that that's an interesting kind of thing that happens with, with folklore and folktales all the time, isn't it, is, is through the retelling and the reimagining. They, you know, they change and they they spread and grow in different ways. Did you find that a particularly interesting process to undertake? Yes, it is. It's. Um, I didn't want to veer too far away from, you know, if you have a, like a character that's traditionally dark, like Baba Yaga, I really didn't want to veer too far away from that. I didn't want to misrepresent her. So I did want to keep some elements of the darkness. Mm -hmm. So 
I wanted to keep her association with death. I wanted to keep the skull and bone fence. And I wanted to keep the idea that um, a lot of um, living people were scared of her. But um, like you say, I did want to explore this kinder side of her. And I didn't want it to be a very dark and scary story. It is for children. And I did want to explore that kinder side of her nature. But I didn't want to just make up, you know, something new. So I, I did a great deal of research about her and I read lots of stories mm. and I like to think that everything I have in there it does it does hail from an original story somewhere so I have changed the emphasis of the character um I've changed the emphasis on different aspects of that character's personality but um I do like to think that I have retained an essence of the original character um, I hope anyway I think absolutely you have yes I, I, I... I don't think that the, the, there's any kind of issue there at all, to be honest. Um, but the emphasis is quite different, like you say. She is, you know, so cruel and cannibalistic in some stories, you know. On the surface, some people have said, you know, she's so kind and lovely. that She's this lovely grandmother type in your stories. And it can seem like quite a contrast from other um, visions of Baba Yaga. But I do think if you read all the Baba Yaga stories, she is a character that has so many different facets and she can show so many different faces to the world which is one of the reasons I was drawn to her of course yes absolutely now you as you say you're you're writing for for children so so you're obviously making slight changes there as well um although I Mm. think I think very respectfully to the original folklore why why do you think folklore is such a good subject and a good base to use for successful children's stories? I think um, these are the, they are the tried and tested stories, aren't they? These stories have been passed down for thousands of years. So these are the ones that um, humans have treasured and passed on. So I think, I think they're just so important. They contain beautiful imagery, they're entertaining stories. And um, I think they contain deep truths about human nature. I think there's a lot of, psychology and philosophy and history and spirituality all wrapped up in these stories they're so layered so I think um, you can read uh, a folk story or, or hear a folk story as a child and perhaps it might just hit you on a surface level so some children they come to me and they say oh I love the house with chicken legs it's so funny this house that runs and they're just enjoying that level of the story and then you have other children and they come and they talk to you about these deeper levels of the story about the links with death and grief and and whole ideas about the afterlife and I think that is that is what I wanted to do I wanted to create something like a folk story that you could read on lots of different levels so it could just be fun and entertaining or you could you know gain a great deal from it um in in other ways I think that's the the beauty of these stories Folklore is often used as a teaching aid or as a, a morality tale. If you look at folklore in Victorian times, for example, yes, there's lots of different ways of doing Victorians. that. Victorians, mm. oh yeah, they they loved a bit of morality. They loved shoving <laughs> some morals in there. They they crowbarred a lot of morals into stories, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they certainly did. I mean, did did you set out to do something similar? I'm not suggesting that you set out to mm. put a particular moral twist on yours, but did you set out intentionally? to use the folklore as a teaching aid as well? I don't know. I don't think I did intentionally, but I have reflected that um, when I started um, writing The House for Chicken Legs, I was unagented and I was unpublished. So I was really writing it for myself and perhaps my children. And um, 
I think my main aim was just it was for my own pleasure. Um, but I think there is always that desire to pass on some sort of wisdom. You know, if you have children in particular, and I didn't think, you know, I didn't think that um, it would be read as widely as it had. But I thought possibly it would be a story I would share with my children. So I think um, there was definitely a level of I want to share some little tidbits of what I've learned about life, some sort of wisdom I would like to pass on to them but in a, you know, in a sort of imaginative way, in an entertaining way. So I'm not, you know, sort of ramming it down their throat didactically, but I did want to weave in, you know, a little bit of wisdom that I have gained in life through the stories, definitely. Why are the stories important? Why is storytelling so important to us culturally or, or as a species, do you think? Mm-hmm. It is a u- uniquely human thing. I think, you know, it, um, storytelling, it's, it's something that we all do. I think it's about understanding the world. It's about linking us all. It's, um, I think stories, they're just, they're a safe space, I think, to introduce and talk about and discuss some quite dark and difficult ideas. I think they just make, cause obviously life is full of some, you know, dark and difficult ideas and, to just talk about them can be quite difficult, I suppose. But if you wrap them up in story, it just makes it, you know, it, it makes a lovely teaching tool and a lovely tool for therapy to sort of wrap up these ideas in a story and um, deal with that imaginatively. And and um, I'm not sure how it evolved, but I think it's just wonderful. It's wonderful, this idea that these stories, they link us all mm-hmm. through time and through space and uh, they show that we're not alone you know that humans we all have the same hopes and dreams and fears and and these stories they show us that and I I think that's just magical it's a truly beautiful thing yes and I really uh, I really liked the way that you used stories uh, as, as an aid in that way in The Girl Who Speaks Bear uh, and also the kind of format that you use to do that so so you almost between every chapter have a folk mm. tale which um, which joins it to the next chapter and, and has this kind of explanation now returning to the character that you mentioned earlier Anatoly who really within the plot of the book itself is is the main storyteller i suppose even when he's not present um yeah now i i read in a, a an interview that somebody else did with you recently um that actually that character wasn't in your mind when you began to write this book is that right <laughs> no not at all he just turned up in chapter two and completely confused me and <laughs> And uh, it, it, it totally threw me off. And for a while, I thought I'm going to have to take him out and give him his own book. And um, but then I sort of carried on. And uh, the girl who speaks bear was quite a difficult book to write for that reason because it went off plan right from the beginning, and it had a lot of drafts and it had a lot of cuts. And the way that it stands now with the between chapter stories is something that took a long time to evolve and to get right. And I'm very happy with it now. But it was. Um, it was a difficult process, I will admit, and at some points I wasn't sure it was going to work. And I'm just so relieved that it's come together as it has. I think it works really well at the moment. It's very difficult, I think, because it wasn't planned. So I was feeling my way in the dark. I was walking through the woods, you know, wandering aimlessly. And it, it did take the help of my agent and my editors to, to bring everything together as it's come together now. 
Isn't this often the way when you're writing, though, that uh, that characters spring up or situations spring up or even, I mean, I'm a non-fiction author, predominantly not a fiction author, but even, you know, writing non-fiction, you find the same thing that you go off on a, a little path that you weren't expecting to go off and, and go down a rabbit hole somewhere and end up with a whole other chapter that you weren't expecting. Yeah, and that's kind absolutely. Of the, it's kind of the beauty of the process as well, isn't it? Really? It is. It is magical. Things just, they just take on a life of their own, you know, you just, you know, and it's lovely when that happens. I'm in the very early stages of writing um, my third book now and I have a plan and to be honest, you know, it'd be nice if it stuck to plan, but I am also kind of waiting and hoping for that moment where everything just springs to life on its own because it is a magical moment when that happens. Uh, and are you still using Russian folk tales as the premise for the next book as well? Yes, yes, I am. And I, I don't want to talk about it too much, but I am. And I think for the foreseeable future, I think I will be. I think there's a lot still there that I want to explore before I move on. There are other folklores I'd love to explore, but I think there's a lot still in Russia that I, I do want to play with. Yeah, oh, yes, absolutely. It's a very broad mm. brush there that you can it use, is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so Anatoly's stories tie tie this book together between chapters. Um, tell mm. tell us some of the stories that you that particularly resonated with you and and why you chose to use them. Oh wow! Okay, so um, it was one. I I really love playing with um, Koshi the Deathless because he's another character, a bit like Baba Yaga, that I've never really fully understood and he's another character that I wanted to understand so um, a, a little bit later he came in to the stories but I love playing with him and kind of giving Koshi his own backstory and linking together some of the traditional stories of Koshi with some of my own ideas so um, that was amazing fun to play with definitely and um, there, it's actually um, there, were, there were a lot more stories and some of them have been cut so um uh, one story springs to mind that was actually one that was put, but it links to what you were saying about um, storytelling. And, um, and one of the reasons Anatoly tells stories is because he has some truths that he wants to tell, but they're too difficult to tell. So he wraps them up in stories. And, uh, and so there was a story I wrote about stories, about how stories, you know, um, spring to life and, and how they just become a thing of their own and so that was kind of fun to write but it, it didn't work in the context of the book in the end so we cut it but um but uh, but yeah I think Koshi's probably my favorite um I managed to draw in um a story about a flying ship as well which was brilliant see that's um that, that's another traditional Russian folk story that I love and um and, and Baba Yaga uh, made a reappearance as well which is she's obviously one of my favorite characters it was it was really wonderful taking quite different stories and weaving them together and then there's quite a few stories about bears and um, i found a lovely little folklore book called bears in russian folklore and um, it's quite an old book and that had loads of little folk stories about bears that it was really fun to read those and to play with those as well yeah i mean even these traditional folk tales um can be reinterpreted uh, and used as a basis for a, a whole different story and just fit in really well, can't they? And you, they you, can. you're using um, not just human characters but animal characters a lot within your story as well. Do, do animals feature quite largely in the Russian folk tales that you've been working with? Um, yeah, quite a few indeed. Obviously, animals, particularly talking animals, are quite huge in fairy stories, and there's a whole 
you know, bank of Russian fairy stories that has talking animals. And um, I didn't, I don't think I tapped into many of them, a few of the bear ones, because you do have the talking bears. But, um, but I, I also love that idea of talking animals, and I use that in my book. One of the things that happens to Yanka as she starts to um, um, develop these links with her past is she starts to understand the animals around her. So I got to have loads of fun um, introducing animal characters and getting to have her communicate with them and understand them which was absolutely brilliant fun in particular her um, she has a house weasel called mousetrap who's based on a house weasel that we well we have a weasel in our house he's not a pet he just lives you know under the floorboards and we hear him so um so i based mousetrap on this real weasel and his character just mm-hmm. it was one of those characters that just came to life on its own and i love him and i love his relationship with yanka that was brilliant fun to write yeah I, I must admit that I spent quite a long time whilst reading the book thinking to myself if Disney ever picked up the rights to this book then Mousetrap would would figure large as a character I think. animal sidekicks are always great aren't yeah, they? yeah. It's because the house with chicken legs had one too the house with chicken legs Marinka had Jack who was um, her, her Jack's door companion and um, and obviously Yank has Mousetrap her, her weasel companion and um it is, it's just wonderful. I, I, I love that idea of um, of a human animal close relationship. It, you know, it, it, it's lovely. <laughs> now, in the sort of last few episodes, I've I've spoken with various authors uh, writing in different genres, um, in crime, adult fiction, adult non-fiction, uh, and children's non-fiction and fiction. Um, and, mm. and some, something that's come up time and again, actually, which, which I found really interesting to ask is why you think folklore appears to be seeing such a resurgence of interest in the last few years, possibly, uh, outside of the mm. academic sphere of the study of folklore or folkloristics, which which is a kind of different thing, but more on the kind of, you know, the layperson's level um mm. why do you think it it's suddenly become such a big deal again i think I, I like to think it's because of this desire of humans to unite i think folklore and stories like we were saying before i, I think is something that unites us that makes us feel not alone and i think unfortunately in recent years there's been a lot of um division of people there's been a lot of um politics that that that, that separate people and divide people and create you know bad feeling between different groups and I think that folklore and mythology and these ancient stories is something that connects us and brings us together and I think there's something very comforting about that and um and so I think you know and it, it offers a great deal of escapism and wonderful imagery and metaphors but essentially I think you know deep down it is just this it's just something that connects us and brings us together and I think that's what perhaps is missing from modern life it feels sometimes is you know like a human connection between us because you know a lot of people have become quite disjointed and and isolated both individually and different groups of people so I like to think it's something that can bring us together basically. I think part of it as well is that, that there are these interesting parallels aren't there when you look at folklore and tradition and belief between different cultures and different countries and you see similar themes coming through as well and it's that kind of as you say, that tying together of people and that kind of collective understanding has a lot to do with it. Do you think there's, yes, 
Do you think there's also a nostalgia element to it as well? I mean, we obviously spoke on the last episode about um, a, a book from the Osborne Stable, which was published in the 1970s, and mm. which, which now everybody looks back on. Um, uh, pe- Bundy, people of, yeah. of, of our age look back and go, oh, do you know what? I remember that being in the school library. It was fantastic, and it resonates again now. Do you think mm. that kind of sense of nostalgia also holds true with with belief and with custom and things that you remember you either doing yourself or your parents or grandparents or ancestors doing and that that's important too definitely for for me personally of course as as I said at the start it was you know as I had children all my memories of my grandmother telling me stories came back to me and um, her stories were very important to her um culturally that you know they relate to her heritage and so I felt that they linked me to her to my heritage and then obviously my children they linked her linked everyone by their heritage so I think for me definitely there is this nostalgia and I think for a lot of people that might hold true I think as you get older and you want to pass things on to the youngsters in your life you think back to what you had been given by the elders in your life and and so definitely there is this thread you know that we want to retain these stories and pass them through I met a lovely lady at the proms. She she came up at the end of the proms and she said um, that she didn't. She had lots of stories. She was from Siberia and she knew um, lots of stories and lots of songs. And she was dying to pass them on. She said she had no one to pass them on to, and mm-hmm. she was hoping that I would um, record them in some way, just so she just so she knew mm-hmm. that they would get passed on. And um, I think that there is this desire just to pass on the knowledge and the stories we have from our past. I think we know deep down how important they are. And uh, yeah, so definitely there is this nostalgia and also this element of, you know, it is very important that we pass on what we were given when we were young to the youngsters today, definitely. Yeah, it's vital, isn't it? And I think that um, folklore and stories haven't been collected in that way for for quite a long time sort of since the the middle of the 20th century probably yeah. when 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 the you know there was serious collecting going on um and it's the reason that I set up um the project that I'm also trying to run through the podcast um to collect people's stories so you know that 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 is still open to anybody is to you know, lots of people have recorded their memories, recorded stories, either in audio or they can just write them and send them in. And I, what I'm trying to do is to is to collect and archive those things so that so that they are um, sort of preserved somewhere. So, preserved, yes. Yeah. This is a wonderful idea. Wonderful, really. Yeah. So people like your like your lady from Siberia who who wants mm. to record stuff and doesn't know how to do it. That's that's the whole reason that I set that project up is to try and give people an opportunity to do that and and I would welcome anybody to do that <clears throat> because I think I it's so I important have to talk to you about this afterwards and get you two in touch definitely yeah yeah please, a similar please. thing um I've, I've just returned from a holiday in Canada and there's um similar things going on there with the First Nations um people the elders there are, are trying to record um the stories in written form because there's so many stories over there that, that that are only getting passed on orally and so there's quite a lot of projects um going on there to try to record um you know old uh, first nations folk stories as well it's um it is vital as you say it's very important that these stories are not lost oh it really is it really is <laughs> and and you obviously um 
Although you didn't collect them, you were told a lot of stories by by your grandmother in early life, and and so they sit with you now, and you still have the opportunity to preserve them. Some of them you've preserved uh, through writing these stories for others, but but what what do you remember? What stories resonated with you that you haven't used in that way, but you just really liked as folk tales? Um. Well, I haven't used um, yeah a story that I really. I, do you know what? Um, okay, so the armless maiden and all the various versions of the armless maiden. I actually I didn't like that story when I first heard it, just because it's obviously a, a very brutal story with some very dark imagery. But it's a story that has dwelled on me, and as I've got older, I've realised um, how deep and how clever and enlightening some of the metaphors and imagery are in that story, and. Um, do just... I do love that story. I'm not sure how I could use it in a book for children because um, some of the imagery is so dark, but that is a story that um, very much resonates with me for lots of different reasons. Do you just want to explain for anybody who's listening who might not know that story? The uh, Armless Maiden, yes, of course. There's, um, okay, so The Armless Maiden is a story. It's, it's really interesting because there are versions of it in almost every culture. A short interruption to the interview at this point. Sophie contacted me after the recording to say that she wasn't very happy with her discussion of the folktale The Armless Maiden, and so she asked me to replace that section of the interview with a piece that she had previously written on the story. Here it is. The Armless Maiden On the Transformative Power of Fairy Tales In a Certain Kingdom, Not in Our Land In this Russian fairy tale, collected and published by Alexander Afanasyev in 1855, a brother and sister are living together after their parents have died. When the brother marries, his wife is jealous of the sister and performs increasingly horrific acts, each time blaming the sister, until finally the brother takes his sister into the woods, cuts off her arms to the elbows and leaves her there. The armless maiden walks through the woods upset for years, until she finally finds a path out, arrives in a new town, falls in love, and marries. When her husband is away on a trip, she gives birth to a son, with arms golden to the elbow, a bright moon on his forehead, and a radiant sun near his heart. The evil sister-in-law finds out about the child, and forges a series of letters that result in the armless maiden and her new child being sent away from their home. Once again, the maiden wanders alone, until she finds a well, stoops to drink, and drops her child by accident. She reaches into the water, and her hands are magically restored. The maiden then finds her brother's house, where her husband also happens to be. She tells her tale, The evil sister-in-law is driven away, and the others began to live happily and to prosper. Variations of this fairy tale can be found all over the world. For example, the girl without hands in Germany, Donna Bernarda in Spain, Bianca Bella and the snake in Italy, Rising Water, Talking Bird and Weeping Tree in French Louisiana, and the girl without arms in Japan. The details vary, but a trusted family member, sometimes a brother, sometimes a father, 
cuts off a young girl's arms and leaves her alone in the woods. She moves to a new destination, where she learns to trust and love again, but then once more she is unfairly driven from her home. Finally, alone in the woods, her arms are magically restored, and she returns to the world where the truth emerges and she moves on with her life. When I first heard this tale, shocked by the brutality of the opening scenes, I was unsure what to make of the story. But I recognised the mutilation of the maiden could represent any number of traumatic, emotional or physical experiences, and the subsequent journey she goes on is one of personal growth and healing. Like many such journeys, it is not linear, and even when things are seemingly better, there are more obstacles to overcome before the happy ending. Fairy tales such as The Armless Maiden that depict such graphic and brutal violence are not often told, but at the right time, for some individuals, they can be both comforting and restorative. They can symbolise the difficulties of passage into adulthood, or journeys of recovery from abuse. Ultimately, these stories are about transformation, the ability to not just endure, but to strengthen and regenerate, not just once, but many times. And they tell readers that although they may feel alone in their journey, there are others who have walked the path before. Now back to the interview. It's an interesting story as well, isn't it? And like you say, it's not something that could be easily used, um, no, certainly not in a children's dark. book. Yeah. yeah. The arm's being chopped off is very brutal, and especially because it's done by a loved one. Um, you know, like a brother or a father. Um, yeah, it's a bit it's difficult, but there's a, there's a, I've, I've read a lot about that story and, and there's a lot of um, very um, clever metaphors in there. And I hear that that story is used a lot in therapy um, for various reasons, but for children, I'm not sure that's one that could be used. I think no. you'd have to change it almost unrecognisably to use it. Yes, yes, you really would, wouldn't you? But but that's interesting you saying about it being used in therapy as well. And that, that I guess is another level to the importance of of storytelling and and the use of of folklore and folk tales that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Yeah, it's, you know, it's an amazing, you know, some some awful things that have happened to people. You might not be able to talk about them directly, but if you tell them this, you know, this story. And um, I think they they might they might help them. They might see you know start to piece together, relate what happened to them to what happened to the maiden. Because I think it is essentially a metaphor for being, you know, abused or treated badly or or having you know something very important taken from you. Uh, so yeah, so it, it, it's it's fabulous. I think for me that is that is one of the stories that really um, shows to me how important folklore can be in in a healing process for people. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah, it's some it's something that's not not considered often when you talk about folklore, but but that's really an interesting perspective on it, isn't it? It really is. Sophie, thank you so much for talking about uh, your work and particularly your new book. Now, uh, as an author myself, I appreciate that sometimes it's better to ask people to buy books from certain places other than from certain other places. So. Your new book comes out very soon. By the time this episode comes out, actually, it might have already been released. Uh, how would you like people to purchase a copy of The Girl Who Speaks Bear? 
Well, I would say um, uh, borrowing it from a library is one thing. I love libraries, and um, and so borrowing it from a library is always an option, and I fully support that. If you would like to buy a copy, which would be fabulous too, um, ideally I'd like people to go into a real bookshop in their town. So, you know, any real bookshop, an independent bookshop would be fabulous, but just any real bookshop, because I think it's so important to have real bookshops in towns, and if we don't buy books from them, we are going to lose them which is a real shame. So library or bookshop, basically a real place. Go into a real place and find it. It's great advice. Uh, and and I would urge people to seek, seek this book out, even if you are not a child and even if you do not have children, because um, I found it uh, an enthralling and really enjoyable read. Um and the other beauty of holding the book in your hand as well is you do get to look at the fantastic illustrations, which, because I had an advanced copy of the book, uh, in some cases I just had pages that said map and illustrations coming soon. So I didn't have all of them, although I have seen uh, some, some of the illustrations online. And, and actually, the, the, your illustrator does a really good job, don't they, of, of representing the, the traditional styles of illustration that go with these stories. Catherine Hanester, name is. Yes, and and she was absolutely fantastic, and and I do like the style of of both that and um, the illustrator who did the um, House with Chicken yes. Eggs too. Liza Paganelli, that one was yeah. Both of them have um, really interesting and um, very folk art related styles. Yes, and they both did a fabulous job. And I'm very um, uh, blessed to have them working on my words. Yeah, yeah, they they really do do them justice. They look the books look absolutely fantastic. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on and talking about uh, your books. Good luck with writing the third one, and we will all look forward to seeing which folk tales you use next. Yes, so I can't wait for the draft one to be finished. <laughs> Go back to work. So thank you so much for having me on your lovely podcast. Thank you. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you to Sophie for joining me to discuss The Girl Who Speaks Bear and her connection with Russian folklore. If you're able, do get hold of a copy of the book and read it for yourself. You won't be disappointed. Visit the guests page on the podcast website to find out more about Sophie and to follow links to her website and to the book. There are a number of other author interviews lined up for the future with both fiction and non-fiction writers who work with folklore. Your feedback on the ones that have been broadcast so far has been very positive, so I will endeavour to keep recording these, as they give a fascinating insight into the ways in which people connect with older stories and beliefs. There are also a number of recordings from conferences and other events which I haven't released yet, so keep an eye open for those too. Some of these will be put out to patrons only, so if you want to make sure that you get to hear all of the additional content, extracts from my archives and other material, do head over to Patreon and sign up to support the podcast. www.patreon.com slash the folklore podcast. Just to remind you, I am endeavouring to keep the podcast advert free because you prefer it this way. But the support of patrons is the only way of keeping the show running. Thank you to everyone who does. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. 
To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.